not just because the Chiefs won, although that was a very good game, I was able to watch some of it. it, looked like our boys from Kansas City were doing well, but we're going to continue here in our series this evening, 1 Kings chapter 3, Timeless Truths, and it's great to be here this evening, I'm always grateful for any opportunity to share with my church family what God's been teaching me and, and anything from his word, don't take that for granted at at any time. So here in 1 Kings chapter 3, we're finally here in chapter 3, right? We were in chapter 2 for quite some time, kind of a longer chapter, uh, split up with some different characters in our narrative that we looked at and saw some timeless truths from their life. And now finally, here we are in 1 Kings chapter 3. So let's remind ourselves of what we've gone over to this point in 1 Kings. Here's our timeline, and uh, if you remember, here in this blue is where we're at, the period of the kings, and um, you see several things of the timeline of Israel in the Old Testament, and actually we are right towards the beginning, but we're about to see in 1 Kings, after Solomon's reign, a split nation, uh, which happens in 1 Kings, um, and, and that kind of shows in our next timeline here of our kings, all right, so the kings of Israel, and then it splits into Israel and in Judah, southern nation of Judah. So right now, again, we're with Solomon, and eventually we'll get to Rehoboam. And during Rehoboam's reign, the nation is going to have a divide, um, which is later on in 1 Kings. So that's where we're at. But some of the things that we've seen already in the book of 1 Kings, right? We started off by seeing Adonijah the opportunist and saw that pride destroys the work of God. And we've seen Nathan the loyalist and saw the need to remain loyal to God's word and to God above all else. We've seen Adonijah and his lack of prudence or caution and wisdom about the potential outcomes of his actions. We saw in chapter 2 David speak to his son, his successor Solomon, and give him spiritual and specific advice and left an example for Solomon to follow as well. And the same things we need to be doing for the next generation as well. Um, advising them spiritually and specifically and living an example that they can follow after. We saw Adonijah's end in chapter 2 and discussed the need to put God's will and plan over our own. We saw Abiathar, the high priest, and his punishment as a result of really just missing this one in this situation. Even though he was a man of God, a priest of God, and missing God's will. And we saw that no matter who we are, how studied we are, how long we've been a Christian, we all have to make sure on a daily basis that we are dying to self and dying to pride because we can be susceptible to missing God's will and plan as well when we're focused on ourselves. And um, so we saw that in Abiathar. Then we saw Joab, and we looked at Joab's end and saw uh, how Joab really missed out on this next stage in Israel uh, that we're going to see of God really prospering the nation. And Joab misses out in service uh, underneath King Solomon and all, all God that all that God is about to do for the nation because of his pride and again be, for the same reasons of putting his own will above God's will and that brings us to this evening or, or actually last week we looked at Shimei sorry um, and that was the end of chapter two when we talked about boundaries and uh, discussed about having a submissive spirit to boundaries. And prayerfully making the right boundaries for those God has entrusted to us for safety, for direction, for wisdom, for help with sin, and the list could go on. 
And that brings us to tonight here in 1 Kings chapter 3. So as we work through 1 Kings chapter 3, we're going to find that this chapter puts an emphasis really on one character in our narrative, and that is King Solomon. We're going to get a a bigger look, you could say, at this character that we find in our narrative. King Solomon, he's been king uh, since chapter 2, right? And we've seen some of his decisions with Abiathar, Adonijah, Shimei, and Joab. But now we're going to take even a closer look at him in chapter 3. So King Solomon, you know the man God used to build God's dwelling place, the temple. The man we all know for his wisdom from God, right? In fact, in our our next sermon, we'll take a look at this amazing wisdom of Solomon that he asked for as we get farther into chapter 3. This is the man God used to write the majority of the wise sayings in Proverbs, to write the book of Ecclesiastes under his inspiration, God's inspiration in the Song of Solomon. But what happened to this king? 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 4 says his heart was not after God towards the end of his life. So what happened? It's, it's a good question to ask because really we can say a lot positive about this man. And you would think for all of this wisdom, we wouldn't be dwelling on some of the negatives that we see in his life. In fact, uh, last week, a brother Jerry Hammer came up to me and asked the same question. What happened to Solomon? And I had the same question. What happened to him? I mean, what happened? He's supposed to be the, one of the wisest men that ever lived, right? So it's interesting here in chapter 3, 1 Kings chapter 3 gives us both the reason for God using Solomon, which we're going to look at next week, and the reason for Solomon's demise. It's all found here, and it's all the beginnings of these things in 1 Kings chapter 3. And so this evening, we're going to see an area where Solomon lacked wisdom, and there weren't many of those areas in his life. There is much positive to be said about King Solomon. However, this evening, we'll see a negative that we would be wise to learn from. So we're here in 1 Kings chapter 3, and we're just going to look at the first three verses this evening. And Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house, and the house of the Lord and the wall of Jerusalem round about. Only the people sacrificed in high places because there was no house built unto the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and burnt incense in high places. So let's take a look, just maybe a closer look, at Solomon this evening and find our next timeless truth. The first thing that we're going to see is Solomon the peacemaker. Solomon the peacemaker. Raise your hand this evening if you love conflict. All right, I, I really don't see any serious hands, at least. For the most part, most of us, I don't believe any of us, really think that conflict is a positive thing, right? There are, there are people, however, that are not peacemakers, but you may say are peace breakers, right? Um, they speak and make comments without really caring where it leads. They look for things to bring up uh, and just can't let them go. They do it in the wrong spirit. But most of us want peace, right? Not conflict, And if we had the choice, we would pick having peace over having conflict. We all know of the conflict the last couple weeks between America and Iran, right? 
And uh, I don't want to open up a can of worms this evening or start a political debate on what has happened. But if you're anything like me, as has kind of you know, escalated the last couple weeks and some of the conflict there, deep down, all right, as you're watching what's going to happen, is Iran going to respond? Is Trump going to respond now? Whatever it might be. And you're kind of watching through. Deep down, I know in my life, there was always the hope that this is going to end peaceably. Right, this isn't going to be a major conflict where we're going to war. And that really, I think, for the most part, all of Americans were hoping that it would end in peace, right? There would not be conflict there. There would not be further conflict or war. And we prayed and hoped for the best outcome, not the worst, to end in a peaceable way. And if Solomon's reign was characterized by anything politically, it would be that Solomon's reign was a reign of peace between other nations and Israel. Complete opposite of his father David, right? A man of war. Solomon was a man of peace. There was no conflict in war. You would say that it was a good time to be alive in Israel, right? The land was prospering. They were free. They were not captive. They tilled their land and worked without fear of an enemy nation attacking them. Men were able to be with their families and the soldiers were comfortable preparing and training at home. This was a good, peaceable time in Israel. They are not in conflict. And you may call it the calm before the storm because it does not remain this way through 1 Kings. And, uh, you know, as you study, you're going to see that. But a few things about Solomon here that we see right here in verse 1 about him being a peacemaker, right? Verse 1 is specifically talking about Solomon making peace with Egypt. That word affinity there in verse 1 means peace or a peace treaty. And so the first thing that we see here in verse 1 is a peace treaty being made between Egypt and Israel. Now Egypt at this point was not a powerhouse nation anymore like we remember them, right? The, during the time of the patriarchs even. During the time before the wilderness in our timeline, Egypt was a force to be reckoned with, if you remember. People came to Egypt in Genesis during the famine and the drought. Pharaohs were well known for their power and their accomplishments. But at this time, Egypt is no longer a powerful nation or really any threat to Israel. Israel is really the powerful nation here. And they're really not a threat in any way. And according to Egyptian traditions and even records, Egypt was weak and even divided at this time in their nation. Complete opposite of what we would have known of Egypt, and they are not this powerhouse nation anymore. So this is who uh, this peace treaty is being made with. But it's it's not just Egypt here. Israel was at peace with other nations as well. All right, King David was a man of war, but Solomon was a man of peace. First Kings chapter four, one chapter over, and verse twenty-five says, "And Judah and Israel dwelt safely." There's that word that has to do with no war or conflict. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. It's a time of peace. Here in verse 1, he makes a peace treaty with Egypt. We're not sure how Solomon came to be at peace with all these nations. We do see in chapter 5, it speaks of a peace treaty and a trade treaty. But could it be that Solomon had a similar treaty with all of these other nations? And we're going to look a little bit at that this evening. And I don't think it's far-fetched because in chapter 11, he has wives from pretty much all of the other nations. 
And that's part of the treaty here with Egypt that we're going to see. So that's what we see Solomon doing here. And for the most part, we would all say that peacemaking is a good thing, right? I mean, churches, families, uh, the world, we all need peacemakers, do we not? But there's a huge danger that comes with peacemaking. And that is the word compromising. Peace at what expense, Solomon? What are we going to ignore or accept or do for the sake of this peace. When you look at the life of Solomon, there is a warning to peacemakers or to peacemaking. And that is this, don't let the fear of potential conflict make you do something God is not pleased with. Because any of us, if we are peacemakers and we all raised, didn't raise our hand that said we don't like conflict, we would rather there be peace. But when you are someone who wants to create peace, There's a danger of creating peace at the expense of truth and at the expense of God's commands. And that's what happens in Solomon's life is what we're going to see here. So let's let's look at this a little bit more closely. Continuing in verse 1, Solomon's compromise for peace. So here in verse 1, we see the beginning of what will be Solomon's downfall. So what did Solomon do here that was wrong? At what expense did this peace with Egypt come with? And part of this peace affinity or treaty involves Solomon taking Pharaoh's daughter, this Egyptian princess, to be his wife. We're not positive which Pharaoh or daughter of Pharaoh this could be. This is Solomon's first wife that we know of. And it will come up in in 1 Kings 11 that he loved her. Israel had a tradition that would proselyte a woman, a Jew, that was from another nation. So um, God had commanded, which we're going to see earlier, not to marry into these nations. And so the Jewish way of getting around that was to take a woman from another nation and induct her as a Jew, right? Um, She would have to do certain things that would um, not necessarily put her on the same level, but almost like a half-breed Jew, you could say. And that's what they would do. And it was just another way to, I don't want to say get around God's clear command not to marry into these nations. But this was a tradition for them. And no doubt this was something that uh, this wife of Solomon went through as well. They would go through the steps to be accepted by the Jews. But to understand this passage, we have to go back to a passage of Scripture that commands are given to Israel from God. And it's before the conquest, and it's in Deuteronomy chapter 7. The fact is, God knew the influence that this type of behavior would cause, and Israel decided to ignore it for years through the book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings. So in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God commands Israel to not marry any of the daughters of these foreign nations, because they will bring in their gods and their idols and their worship. It says this in Deuteronomy 7, 3 through 4. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me, and that they serve other gods. So will the anger, anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. It's almost as if God understood what this type of compromise would do to a nation exactly what happens in 1 Kings and in 2 Kings as well. This is a warning to the nation. 
And here in Deuteronomy 7, it's specifically talking about the nations that they drove out of the promised land, but it went for any nation that worshipped other gods that was not a nation that served the one true God. And Solomon not only does that here, but again, we're going to see in a little bit in 1 Kings chapter 11, he does it over and over and over again 700 times. So there's something wrong here. Whether Solomon's choice to marry this woman and others we read about in chapter 11 were part of a peace treaty or not, this is an obvious disobedience to a clear command from God, right? And you could make the argument that there, are, there is peace with all these other nations and he has wives from all these other nations and so perhaps part of all these peace treaties are the fact that he took a wife from the nation as well. But compromise for the sake of peace, is it really what Solomon should have done? That's what we're looking at. Was it worth disobeying God's commands? Was this peace worth it? In, in this first account, this Egyptian, this Egyptian princess is part of making peace. So let's ask it this way. Clearly, Egypt is not a powerhouse, right? We've already discussed that. So did Solomon taking the Egyptian princess even need to happen for peace. Think about it. Could Solomon have arrived at peace without it? Absolutely. Israel was much more powerful than Egypt at this time. This peace treaty could have arrived at peace. Not only that, Israel is a powerhouse. Egypt is not. Egypt would have accepted any peace, not to mention... It's interesting because according to Egyptian practice and tradition, it was not even custom for an Egyptian pharaoh to give their daughters to wife to another nation. Now, it was for other countries, and they would give that as part of a peace treaty, but that was really never the case for Egypt, and yet it is here. I think absolutely there could have been peace reached without compromise here. Truly, this compromise gives us a glimpse of what is going to play a huge role and to turning Solomon, this wise man's heart from God. Compromise and peacemaking here in chapter 3, an obvious compromise throughout his reign. So can one have peace without compromise is really what we're asking. And the answer is yes, absolutely. One can have comp- or, or peace without compromise, but it only happens when the spirit is right, right? So when there's a spirit of love, when there's a spirit of kindness, when there's a spirit of gentleness, it's amazing what the love of Christ can do as far as peace, harmony, and unity, right? But nowhere in Scripture does it say we have to compromise to get to that point. Many times it's simply the spirit of dealing with truth that it all depends on, that peace depends on. So Solomon, the peacemaker, in his peacemaking, he compromises to arrive at this peace or no conflict with Egypt. What else do we see as we read on though? Verse 2 comes and it switches the focus from Solomon to the people living under Solomon at this point. The nation, the people of Israel. And here we see their compromise. If you were here last Sunday morning, we discussed these high places that we see in verse 2. Little did we maybe realize that we're setting the basis for this evening's passage, right? These high places come in effect again, even though we're going back in time from last Sunday's message. 
This verse looks one way if taken at face value, but we actually have to study it a little bit to, to see it a little bit deeper and accurately. So first thing we want to say is, just in review, what are these high places that are talked about? We talked about them last Sunday morning. They are places of worship created by people who did not know the one true God and did not want to please the one true God. And they were made for the purpose of holding ceremonies and rituals that had to do with worshiping and sacrificing to false gods, and in some cases, even child sacrifice, which we saw last Sunday morning. They were places where people sacrificed, burnt incense, and performed rituals. And they got their name because they were made on high ground, or in the mountain. And in 1 Kings and 2 Kings, we see that Israel is actually involved in these rituals, and in these places, and these practices, and even child sacrifice. Without repeating last week's message, these high places proved to plague the nation for years to come. Finally, like we looked at last Sunday, Hezekiah, the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, breaks them down because, like God said, it turned the nation's heart from the one true God, just like God said it would do. But at this moment, in this passage, we have to understand what's actually happening here. The nation is not worshiping other gods at this point, but they're using these high places to worship the one true God. That's what's taking place. So during the times of the kings, high places were a general name for places of worship as well. So really, when you see high places throughout 1 Kings and 2 Kings, they're places of worship. And now we have to distinguish whether it was a place of worship for the one true God or a place of worship that came from another nation. But the fact of the matter is, really, you can see that there's a negative connotation when the Bible talks about them worshiping at these high places because either scenario was actually wrong because God had already given a command to both of those scenarios. You see, in Deuteronomy chapter 3 and verses 5 through 6, God commanded that all high places from the heathen nations be completely destroyed. And it says, But thus shall ye deal with them, ye shall destroy their altars, and break down their images, and cut down their groves, and burn their graven images with fire. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. And in chapter 12, verse 2, there's a repeated command to break down and destroy these high places that were built by heathen nations for the purpose of worshiping false gods. Israel was going to be a pillar for the one true God for others to see. But they become no different from the heathen nations when we look at 1 Kings and 2 Kings. Due, in a large part, to these high places. But the other command... Let's say that Israel is doing both. They are worshiping in some high places that were made previously for false gods. But they also made other high places specifically for worship of the one true God. There's also a command that was already given about this as well. In Leviticus chapter 17, God also commanded that worship not be done anywhere except at the door of the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant was. That was to be God's quote-unquote, dwelling place, and where worship was to take place, where these sacrificial rituals were to take place, where the, the priests were to reside. And it was a command that that be the only place 
Many critics stated, as I was studying this, that Israel and Solomon were fine because the actual tabernacle that Solomon would build had not been built yet. However, the negative language in verse two, verses 2 and 3 obviously show there's a problem with what Israel is doing here, with their choice of worship. Currently, the tabernacle was in Gibeon, uh, which we're going to see next week is where Solomon goes. And, um, and that's in chapter 3 as well. And really, there were two reasons for, uh, you could say, the prohibition of high places. The first one was the danger of the old idolatry creeping back in, right? And the old um, practices and rituals and worship. And secondly, the danger uh, to the unity of the nation if there should be more than one legitimate religious center at this time. Both of those were reasons for this prohibition. So both of these commands are given prior to what we see happening here in 1 Kings chapter 3. And the nation's compromise is this. They're not necessarily worshiping false gods, but they're worshiping the one true God in high places. And there's a problem. There's compromise. And it's interesting because as I read this, it says the same thing about Solomon in the same exact verse that it says, Solomon loved the Lord and walked according to his father David. So I see something very interesting when we think about compromise, even in our life, about what we see next in verse 3. Solomon's right intention had right intention, but wrong means. So basically we're saying this. You could have the right intentions, Christian, but have the wrong means of doing it. And that's what God is saying here to the nation of Israel. They had the right intentions. They wanted to worship the one true God, but the way they did it wasn't, wasn't acceptable to him. They did it with a compromise. Verse 3 takes the focus away from the nation, again, back onto King Solomon. And to understand verse 3, we have to understand a few things. This verse is not stating that all of Solomon's actions were perfect, right? Nor that he had done anything wrong. This verse is really a contrast to 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 4 where it states the opposite about him. So in chapter 3, you see it stated about Solomon that he loved the Lord. And in chapter 11, it stated that his heart was not after God. You see, there's a contrast here because at the beginning of Solomon's reign, his intentions were good. His intentions were right. He wanted to serve the one true God. He wanted to lead the nation in serving the one true God. But call it ignorance or call it compromise. They did it the wrong way. This verse is dealing with Solomon's motives, not necessarily his actions. Solomon's heart was truly to love God. Solomon truly wanted to please God. He wanted to lead the nation into following after God. And we're going to see that in chapter 3. That was, at this time in his life, that was his heart. But as good as Solomon's intentions were, that did not automatically make the means of his action acceptable before God. So what do you mean by that, Pastor Joe? Well, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God is concerned about the motives behind actions, correct? God is concerned about our hearts. God is concerned about the motives of our heart when we do something. He, he puts a huge emphasis all the way back to the Old Testament and in the New Testament that our heart is vitally important because that's where it starts. 
But there's also what we see throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. God has also always cared about the motives and the means of serving him. Some service and worship in the Old Testament was not acceptable to God because the heart motive was wrong, right? They would sacrifice, but their heart truly wasn't for God, and that was not acceptable to God. But the flip side of that is also true. Their motives were maybe to please God, but they did it with the wrong means, and that was also unacceptable. And so they're working through this here in Israel. Solomon's heart is to be commended here. It really is. But God has an issue with the means. These high places. God wanted a motive that was pure and out of a love for God. God was concerned about the heart, but God was also concerned about the outward means as well. It started in the heart. Did you know God cares about your heart? And there should be an an emphasis on making sure that people's hearts are right. But after that, there should be discipleship and growth in helping people understand acceptable and unacceptable ways of being a living sacrifice. Just as there were unacceptable and acceptable ways of making a sacrifice in the Old Testament. Both need to happen in worship and in service. A pure motive and a pure mean. And that's what's happening here. The nation of Israel... This negative um, language here says only in verse 2. And the word only comes up again in verse 3. For Solomon, it's a negative here. And they're being judged not on their motive, but on their mean. What they used to worship God was not acceptable before him. There's compromise. There was compromise in Solomon's peacemaking. And there's compromise in the nation's actions of worship. And also in his actions in verse 3, he himself, those actions with these high places. So we see that Solomon had right intentions, but wrong actions. So we see this in Solomon's life. Acts of compromise led to Solomon's fall. He compromised God's command to not marry these other nations, not marry women from these other nations. He disobeyed that and compromised it for peace with these other nations. The nation of Israel compromised with these high places and keeping them around and making their own for God, even though that wasn't what God wanted. And there's this compromise happening, but if you flip forward this evening to chapter 11 and read the first several verses, we see that these compromises eventually and arguably led to the demise of arguably the wisest man to ever live. It says this in 1 Kings 11, But King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zenonians, the Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Asherah, the goddess 
of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord, as did David his father. Then did Solomon build an high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Melech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise did he for all his strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. Here in chapter 3, we see a close look at the man God used to write many of our Proverbs, right? To write the book of Ecclesiastes. The man really God did use in a great way for the nation of Israel. They're at peace. God blesses them. And we see Solomon's heart come out in chapter 3. He did have a motive to serve God. God asked him for anything Solomon wants. He asked for wisdom, and we're going to see that. Solomon has a good heart to start, a heart after God, but compromising. Compromising led to this man's demise. Because one compromise after the next, after the next, led to 1 Kings chapter 11. And these thousands of women later, in these high places, that turned Solomon's heart from the one true God to their gods. Exactly the reason God had commanded and warned about this before. God warned Israel years earlier but about the effects these compromises would have on a nation that was supposed to be a separate and holy nation, a beacon, a light to other nations because they were claimed by the one true God. And yet they find themselves, and here's the start of it here in 1 Kings chapter 3, when you get deeper into 1 Kings, they find themselves not being any different than the heathen nations. Now that we've interpreted the passage, let's, let's apply it to our lives. The church is not Israel, right? Yet the Bible does tell us that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that we should show forth the praises of him who hath called us out of darkness, right? In, second, in 1 Peter 2.9. We have the same call for holiness and separation in the New Testament, do we not? So let's apply these truths about compromise to our lives. Our timeless truth this evening is compromise brings danger to the Christian life. That's what happens when we look at this. So as we wrap up, let's define what compromise is, right? Like many words in the English language, compromise could mean many things. But what are we talking about this evening? Sometimes compromise could simply mean two parties come to a mutual agreement, right? It's a compromise which that isn't necessarily a bad thing, right? Let's say you have two children, but one piece of pie left. And um, a better answer than one child getting that piece of pie and the other child not is to split the piece of pie and give even pieces to both children, even though they're probably going to bring out the fact they're not even, right? Um, And have that compromise, that mutual agreement. That's not... A bad thing, and that's not what we're talking about this evening when we're talking about compromising in our Christian life. Compromise could also mean to accept standards that are lower than desirable. That's actually a Webster definition. Accept standards that are lower than desirable. Not a bad definition, but I think we can be more specific to Christianity, right? To compromise in our walk with Christ means to accept something that's not pleasing to God. 
That's what to compromise would be. And knowingly doing so, right? And so that's what, we, that's what our definition is going to be for compromise. God gives believers the same warnings about the world around us. That we must be careful of the influence of the world, right? Because it can lead to the exact same heart motives. It can lead to the exact same actions. We have to be careful of lest we find ourselves compromising and living in sin before God. So realizing this this evening, we have discussed a downfall of arguably the wisest man who ever walked on the earth outside of Christ. And yet he was prone and susceptible to compromise. Let's not fool ourselves into thinking this evening we're the exception to compromise. It doesn't matter how long I've been saved, how much Bible knowledge we have, how many victories in our spiritual walk we've had in the past. Compromise is a danger to our spiritual life. And no matter what stage of life we are spiritually, it's something we have to be aware of. There is a strong warning this evening against compromise. And if the wisest man can do it, we have to be very careful as well. We see him falling into compromise for the sake of peace. And even with the right motives, but just maybe an ignorance or a clear neglection of one of God's clear commands about high places. That's our definition of compromise, right? Accepting something in our life, in our spiritual walk, a standard, something that we allow in our life, something that we allow our lives to dwell on, to think about or do or say, that is clearly not pleasing to God. So compromising for the sake of peace, do we ever do that today? Peace is a good thing. Unity is commanded and harmony is commanded as we learned this morning, right, in the body of believers. But did you know that unity, harmony, peace, love, they're all possible without compromise? Growth in Christ is next to impossible when we walk spiritually with a fear of potential conflict because of truth. Let's put it this way. If you compromise truth every time there is potential conflict, we will find ourselves looking more like people or even more like the world than we find ourselves looking like Christ. We have to beware of this same temptation that Solomon finds himself in. Maybe there have been areas in your life where you have compromised because of the possibility of conflict, potential conflict. I don't want to deal with it, so compromise is the easy way out. Just like in Solomon's case, can I say this, many times we convince ourselves that the only way there will be peace or unity or harmony is if we compromise. But the fact of the matter is, most of our situations are kind of like Solomon's. He didn't need to compromise to create peace with Egypt. There might have been potential of it, but just handling it in the right spirit with the right means to Egypt would have resulted this in the same peace. And in our lives, sometimes we convince ourselves that there's only going to be unity, there's only going to be peace with my family, there's only going to be love in this situation or in our church. If we just give in at this spot, or whatever it might be. But most of the time, we convince ourselves that there's going to be conflict. 
But really, it's not true and it's not there. We're just making something of something that is uh, not really what's happening. The Bible tells us that to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin, James 4.17. For years, Christianity has been made of people getting saved, people growing and maturing and new people getting saved. And when someone first gets saved, they don't know everything about God's commands yet, right? That's what the discipleship process, that's why it's needed and it needs to take place. And to teach the what's and the why's of Christianity are always important for a new believer, right? To understand God's commands and understand the reasons for why we do what we do. But what has happened is that we have had believers who know the what's and the why's decide to compromise what they already know is right for the sake of love or for the sake of peace. The answer has never been to compromise. It's always been to speak the truth in Christ-like love, as has been our theme over the past year. So we have to be careful. Compromising for the sake of peace is not really biblical. And there's a danger in that as well. But what else can we apply? Right motives do not guarantee right means. We saw that from uh, the life of Solomon. I'm convinced that many times compromise does happen with ignorance. And that's not necessarily an excuse for compromise. But as I've lived and watched close friends compromise and even seen compromise in my own life, I have seen few people compromise with a wrong motive. Now it does happen, right? When a believer doesn't have their heart right, then they are susceptible to all kinds of compromise. But I've seen Christian family after Christian family, or even church after church, friend after friend, person after person, or even myself, claim to have a heart that loves the Lord, and as far as I can see, they absolutely do, but completely miss the means. And even though they are convinced they're fine, because their heart may truly be to please God, they don't realize what they have chosen to do is actually not acceptable to God. Ignorance is no excuse to compromise. We've failed many times by not discipling as much as we should the next generation. Um, And they just sometimes accept out of ignorance the next thing. Unfortunately, I've seen Christian after Christian that I do believe absolutely love the Lord. And I, I strongly believe that But allow me to maybe take a stand here tonight and say that they accept CCM music. Their heart is right, but the means are wrong. It developed from a people with no heart for God. The basis for that music. Now the lyrics have God in it. And again, we're not judging the motive because I truly believe the motive is to love God. But sometimes out of ignorance... We can even compromise on things that we don't even realize are taking place. And we have to be careful about that. Ignorance is no excuse for compromise. Can I encourage you that you need both the right motives and the right means when it comes to worshiping and serving God? God cares about your heart, Christian, but he also cares about the outward because it should be a reflection of what's inside. His love, yes, but also his holiness, also his purity, If you truly have a heart for God, then don't stop growing in Him. Develop standards biblically. 
Continue to search him out and let him guide you. And look what he has to say about worldliness or holiness and then compare it to every specific area of life. Don't stop growing in him. If you have the right heart motive, then that's going to reflect in your outward actions as well. And our heart, if it's right, should be to continually know what God has to say about our outward actions. Right motives and right means. uh, A life with right motives and right means is the kind of living sacrifice that is acceptable to God and that God chooses to use in mighty ways as well. So right motives do not always guarantee right means. We have to be careful about compromise in that area as well. So let's wrap it all up by saying this. What are the results or dangers of compromise? As we close, I've seen, we've seen that what compromise did to Solomon, right, in chapter 11. But could we just take a few minutes to look at Scripture and see what compromising can do or lead in our lives, in a church or in a family or an individual believer as well? And this is not an exhaustive list at all, but it's very similar to what we see happening in Solomon and the nation of Israel's life. The first thing is this, conforming us to the world. Compromise is going to accomplish that, especially over time. When compromise takes place in our lives, in our family or our church, our worship, our lifestyle, our dress, our speech, our actions, our thoughts, what we find okay starts to look more like the world than it does a reflection of our Heavenly Father many times. That's what happened to Israel. They were supposed to be a light. They had the one true God. They were supposed to reflect Him and be separated unto Him, but instead they looked the same as the heathen nations. Compromise can do that to the wisest of us. Compromise can make us look like the world that has a system of beliefs of what is right and wrong, of what is modest, of what is good that is derived from a heart that doesn't know God, that has no desire to please God. And compromise can take even the wisest of Christians and make us look like the world and conform us into the world's image. It can allow problems that need to be dealt with to continue, right? When we compromise for the sake of peace or love, we have to realize that we have failed to be a positive impact on whoever we conformed to or compromised to. Solomon and Israel could have been a separated, holy example by their peaceable and loving stances on issues to Egypt. They could have been that example. Instead, by compromising, Solomon lost his opportunity to not only show God's love, but also his holiness. We compromise love for holiness a lot of times. But we have to be careful. Being like Christ is both being like him in love and in truth and in holiness. Instead of having an opportunity to lovingly disciple and help someone grow closer to Christ, we automatically crumble and compromise without trying many times. When really the right step is to lovingly disciple and lovingly have a discussion of how the Holy Spirit has led you to that decision to that conviction, to that standard. They allow the problems that need to be dealt with to continue. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 talks about relationships between believers. And specifically relationships when there is something wrong. Right? When something is wrong uh, that God complete, uh, clearly commands against, 
Paul is pleading for Christians to come alongside and lovingly disciple and lovingly bring alongside and say, hey, I know your motive is right here, or maybe it's not, but this is what the Bible has to say. This is what God wants of us as Christians. And that's what Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, and we miss that opportunity when we compromise. It leads others to compromise as well. This, if for no, no other reason, is one that really sticks out to me. Solomon did not help the rest of Israel in holiness by his compromise. Instead, he led the way in this compromise. When we compromise as pastors or as parents or as a teenager that has an influence on other students or kids, we lead others to accept the same things. So when we compromise, when we accept something in our life that is against what God wants us to do, we lead others in doing it too. And that should be a huge warning. It should be serious to us. If we realize that if we do something that is against God's word, that results in worldliness instead of godliness, and it affects and leads others, like our children, to maybe even ignorantly live in that way contrary to God's word, that should be serious to us. That should be a warning. We have to realize that compromise not only affects our own Christian walk, but it affects others as well. It leads to continual compromise. Now, what does that mean? When we compromise and make standards or decisions clearly against God's word, we have to ask ourselves, when will it stop? Or where is the line for us? Is God's word the sole authority for life and godliness? Each time we compromise, we give a bigger opening in our lives and in our reasoning for further compromise as well. You could say it this way, Solomon compromised over 700 times, right? I believe compromise may be plaguing Christianity today. And one of its biggest dangers is that the thought process behind compromising only opens the door for more compromise. We begin to live according to the flesh instead of the spirit. And the more we open our lives back to the thinking of our own sin nature, the more we allow ourselves to justify it more as well. And then finally, even, this is an exhaustive list, but the last one we'll talk about it. It destroys our witness. That, that uh, passage in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 is talking about you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its savor, then what effect does it have? And that's what really we're talking about. Instead of being an accurate picture of Christ to the world, we look just like them. What a shame to think that compromise on our part, even if it's for the sake of peace could cause someone not to accept Christ. But it can happen. What compromise does is paints an inaccurate picture of Christ to the world. The love we show them is inaccurate because it begins to lack truth. And as followers of him, we show a lifestyle of flesh instead of holiness. I was actually talking to my dad a few weeks ago, and we said, isn't it interesting that when someone gets saved that was in the world, they come into Christianity, they get saved, and they automatically know drinking's wrong. They automatically know the music of the world is wrong. In fact, if you were to ask the world, it's unfortunate, but many people of the world without Christ know the do's and don'ts of believers better than believers do. 
and yet believers decide to compromise them. And the world says, oh, it's obvious to me, it's clear, they shouldn't do this, or that's of the world. But believers, we blur that line for ourselves many times. If you ask the world about things a Christian should and should not do, they actually have a good understanding. So as we conclude, we have to think about several things. This evening, my goal is never to judge any motives. Uh, I believe some compromise takes place with uh, a deep down, a knowing spirit, and some compromise takes place out of ignorance, but both are dangerous. Compromising, accepting something that is against God's word is dangerous. From what I know of, I can honestly say that from talking to you, I believe you all have the right heart motive, right? We all want to live for God. We all want to love God. We can accept, however, sometimes ignorantly, a compromise, and it's just as dangerous. So how do we keep from knowingly or ignorantly compromising? Well, the first thing is that this book has to saturate our lives on a daily basis. This place has to be a cherished time for you and your family to come meet with other believers. If we want to guard our lives from compromise, knowing compromise, we're compromising maybe because of ignorance. You want to guard from that? Have God's word saturated in your daily life. Focus on that. This book has to be saturated. I wonder this evening if maybe we just need to pray that God gives us wisdom and the courage to not compromise. That would be a great goal, a great truth to apply. I wonder if you need to maybe um, take prayer with your family before going to bed tonight and just pray that we as a family would have the wisdom to not compromise, knowingly or by ignorance either, that we would keep God's word saturated in our family. Let's pray tonight that that's true of our church body as well. That as we continue to serve the Lord, we don't fall into compromise. But we continue to love others. We continue to show Christ's love and Christ's holiness and continue to grow in our walks individually as well. And maybe you know of compromise in your life. Like we've talked about last Sunday morning, it may be time for a commitment and discipline for change to take place. So how is God working in your life? Solomon has a lot of good, which we're going to see. And God used him. But we see the beginnings here in chapter 3 of what is unfortunately going to plague his life and the nation of Israel as well. And it's the danger that compromise brings a child of God. It can bring conformity to the world. It can mean that we don't take care of issues that needed to be taken care of. It can mean that we lead another generation into ignorantly compromising. It can mean that we destroy our witness to the world around us. So for all those reasons and many more, I think it's safe to say it would be wise of us to think seriously tonight and pray that God would keep us safe from the dangers of compromise. Let's pray.